0: Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear, uses directed.
1: This episode
0: is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
1: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
0: What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mashazda. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers Wow. What can I say? Steven Kotler is a freaking badass. Uh, just did an amazing show with him. Learned, uh, I mean, ins and outs of uh, his new book, Nar Country*. Uh, what he did. It's all about his exploration into park skiing and leveraging really the art of the impossible, the, the, his last book, and him becoming a guinea pig uh, with his own work, becoming a park skier. It's just such an awesome episode. If you want to learn about flow and human performance and peak performance, this guy is like nobody I've ever heard or talked to about this. Uh, stay tuned. Enjoy the episode. Uh, Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mashazim. Boy, do we have a special guest. My oh, man Stephen Kotler is in the house. What's up? What's up, Stephen?
1: It's good to be with you, Darius.
0: Oh man, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, so you don't know this, I met one of your co-authors, Jamie Wheel, on Stealing Fire when you guys put that book out uh, at MIT a couple years ago, and I got introduced to your work around uh, flow, and and have really been kind of started following the, the work that you did. And uh, it's really just excited to have you here to talk about all the amazing things today. We're going to be talking about your book that's coming out. I believe it's in February. Is that correct? NAR Country. Yeah, so it is correct. Very cool. So we're talking about NAR Country, growing old while staying young. Um, I just added the while in there. It's just staying, uh, staying rad. Excuse me. <laughs> growing old, staying rad. It doesn't matter. It's the beginning of the people crushing the title. It's good. This is. This, I'm just hearing
1: variations on a theme. <laughs>
0: Well, um, look, I'm so excited to talk to you about the book. Um, had the got was pumped to get an advanced copy of it to get to read. Um, but before we go there, I wanted to uh, give a little bit of, of your formal bio. So for listeners who may not be familiar with your work, uh, Stephen is just a royal badass. He's a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's actually one of the world's foremost authorities and leading experts on human performance. And so we're going to be talking all about how you've taken your work and actually applied it on yourself uh, in in your new book, "Nor Country. Um, so welcome to the show, man. Good to be here. So I wanted to, um, first and foremost, uh, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things here at the show. People are living their passions and those creating greatness in the world. And, and the book's really like kind of a testament to you doing those two things. Um, I'd love if before we get into the book, though, if you wouldn't mind you know, kind of giving a little bit of your origin story. How did you get into the world of writing and and, and how, really getting into this world of flow and performance, uh, peak performance, and all the things that you're, you've been working on over the, the past couple of decades. I'd love to hear the beginning of that and what's brought you to yeah. the current book.
1: I'm gonna try to do this as quickly as possible because it's it's not, any, it's not a there's no quick, simple answer. Um, Writing is what I've always done. So I, since I was four years old, um, I started. I started writing. My grandmother was a was a poet, and by, I'm using that term very loosely here. What I really mean is my grandmother wrote things that could go on Hallmark greeting cards. But I didn't know any better when I was four years old, and so I uh, I jumped right in. I I started writing, and by the time I was ten or 11, 12, I was writing every day. And um, so it was never a question of what was I going to do. Um, What direction was I going to take it was more of an open question when I got out of graduate school um, and sort of stumbled into journalism, uh, mostly as a way to pay the bills while I was was finishing my first novel, um, uh, which was the goal. Uh, Journalism is this amazing career, especially when I stumbled into it, uh, where whatever you were curious about, you could go explore and, Mm. and, and maybe earn a living. And I was fascinated by two things neuroscience, and especially, like, this is in the 1990s, so neuroscience is just starting to focus on what I'm really curious about, which is human performance, and really how do people work. And up until the 90s, nobody really talked about behavioral neuroscience. It was, it was a sort of ridiculous thing. We were just trying to figure out what are all the parts of the brain, what do they do, how do neurons function, all that stuff. But in the 90s, we started understanding emotions and consciousness and things along those lines you can ask behavioral questions. and I, So I was doing a lot of that. And simultaneously, uh, I was covering action sports. This is early days. So action sports is mostly deep punk rock subculture at this point. Um, it's not the Gravity Games. have just started the X Games, but it's really sort of a punk rock subculture. And I was fascinated and I uh, was living in these communities and I was hanging out with these athletes. And if you know anything about the 1990s, and action sports is often referred to as the era of impossible where more were impossible feats, things that had never been done before and we believe would never going to get done, got done. And, you know, I always say it's one thing to see an athlete do something um, that appear Laird Hamilton surfing an 80-foot wave, you know, on a screen. It's an entirely different thing when, you know, you go drinking with a group of your friends on a Friday night and then a Saturday morning you go into the backcountry and one of them does something that for all of recorded history it's never been done before. And it was made worse worst quote-unquote most of the people I knew they were not paradigms of anything you would think of with peak performance there was like folks had very little education they had very little money they had rotten childhoods, broken homes a lot of risk-taking and substance abuse in the community and normally you put those things together and people and people die young or go to jail and what they don't do is reinvent what's possible for the species and that's what was going on and I wanted to know what was happening and that was sort of my introduction into the world of, of flow science, um, which is essentially where I, where I've stayed since then and have just, you know, I explored first as a journalist, then I, you know, then in in dozens of books and now with the flow research collective, you know, I run a international research organization and and we do this work with top neuroscientists, um, at major institutions. So how I'm doing the research and how I'm writing about it has changed over the years. Um, but, uh, the topic is pretty much, st- you know, writing was always the thing and, uh, exploring these ideas, um, has
0: always been the thing. I love it. And, and so uh, quick question on that. So when you were out there and I know you talk about this in the book and we get in the book in a second, like, obviously you have a, a love affair with, with skiing, right? And so was when you're out in the back country and growing up skiing and, 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 you know, getting involved in, in that world, were you, were you looking at that and, and, I guess, having that interest in human performance where you're like oh this is this is flow, I want to go learn more about the flow state, or was it how did that so, like I mean, that connection get made yeah, if you so i mean there's a this is a long answer, but the
1: first bit of it that makes the most sense is flow is at that point when I was poking at this a psychological term, right there were a lot of synonyms in the zone, peak performance, peak experiences. On and on and on, and nobody knew were all these the same thing. Were they different things? One of the reasons I was so fascinated with the neuroscience is the psychological language was all over the place, and then the popular language was even more confusing. But if you talked to the athletes and said, "How are you doing this?" They all said the same thing: "When I'm performing my best when I'm doing these so-called supposedly impossible things, I'm in an altered state of consciousness where you know I." feel my best and I perform best and they would, they would describe a flow state in in various ways, but it was very clear that the athletes were all saying the same thing. And to give you like the irony of it, one of the things that the athletes were all saying is, Hey, when I have this experience, it feels like I've become one with everything. Like I've lost my sense of self and I've become one with everything. So my leg up on this work, if it ever happened was, um, Andrew Newberg, who was the very first neuroscientist to start examining so-called mystical experiences in the brain. He put a bunch of Tibetan Buddhists, Benedictine Franciscan nuns, who both experienced cosmic unity, this feeling of oneness with everything in their meditations, in the brain scanners and said, what the hell is going on in your brain while you're experiencing? And I called them and I said, hey, man, I've been interviewing action sport athletes for a very long time they're describing this experience mm. where part of it is they ex- feel one with everything. Do you think we're looking at the same thing? So it, you know, I actually started there with this one, with, with this phenomenological, this experience and were it wasn't entirely clear. It was flow for a little while longer. That was flow was probably a year. Or, I came in through like, Hey, there's this weird mystical experiences that I know aren't mystical and are biological, but they're common in all these weird places what the hell's going on? Why are Buddhists uh in you know meditators and uh surfers having the same experience? What's going on there? That was
0: those were some of the early questions I was asking. Got it. And so um I want to move into the book because like I, I normally I would go into the book way later, but I literally had 30 questions. I had to pare down my <laughs> questions. I mean, it was an A, it's an awesome book. B. It's just so cool that like you're you're essentially the guinea pig for the work in the book. So so I've never gotten to speak to someone that's actually done what you accomplished in the book. Um, so first and foremost, the book's title is Nar Country G N A R. For those people that are not uh, familiar with the word Nar, um, can you tell us about the title of the book? What does it mean? Uh, yeah, for go sure. into that a little bit. Yeah. So the book the book is about peak performance aging. Right,
1: and we'll, we can go into a lot greater detail, but uh, Nar is action sports slang and it's action sports slang for high in perceived risk and high in actual risk so if an action sport athlete describes like a ski run as, as the nar they're saying look like you gotta have your shit together if you're gonna go in there because it doesn't just look scary it's actually scary you better be able to drive focus and use it to drop into flow otherwise you've got a problem but that's sort of besides the point i realized it's a Phenomenal description of our later years, high in perceived risk and high in actual risk, and a really great description of sort of the gritty mindset which with which to thrive in those later years. And countries, of course, any terrain or territory or landscape. So in our country to me was, wow, this is a really good description of what's coming for us and what we need to, to thrive under those conditions. And obviously, um, we've alluded to it enough. Uh, in our country is my attempt to run a very sort of a radical experiment in peak performance aging. Uh, I tried to teach myself how to park ski at age 53 and you are right. I'm a lifelong skier, but I had zero park skiing experience and a lot of stuff like the, the odds were against me <laughs> there are, for a ton of different reasons, seven or eight biological reasons. Um, it's essentially supposed to be impossible for anybody over the age of 25 or 35 to really learn how to park ski. And, uh, there were a bunch of reasons why I did it and uh, thus th- it, but we'll, we can get all into that, but thus the title in our country.
0: Got it. And so um, for listeners who are like myself, uh, A, a snowboarder, B, not super like avid, you know, I'm like re- m- way more recreational. Um, I love the work around flow, which made the book super interesting. But what can you describe what park skiing is? Because I think a lot of people, yeah, I didn't know what so- it was till, till I heard it. Park skiing is the discipline, it's freestyle, and it's the discipline in skiing
1: uh, or and snowboarding, by the way, that involves terrain parks. So it involves doing tricks off jumps and doing trips onto rails and boxes. So rails are literally long metal pipes laid out on the snow that you can slide across. They're slicker than ice. Incredibly dangerous, but you can do really amazing, amazing things. It's a very acrobatic pursuit. Um, it takes place pretty far above the ground. The way I explained it in the book, and I still think this is apt, is... I was essentially a big mountain skier, which, and which is essentially being a speed skater, right? Almost everything I did, I did in one directional, staying in, in contact with the surface of the earth. Park skiing is like figure skating, right? It's three dimensional. And a lot of the stuff you do takes place above the surface of the earth. And it's not one direction. It's, you know, spinning and flipping and skiing backwards and all that stuff. Um, and so that was, that was the idea. and. Um, I came to it sort of – I had I never really had any interest in park skiing, but something unlocked a door, first of all. I had, for a variety of different reasons, uh, really – I've been studying peak performance aging. There's you know, a ton of stuff that's not in the book. So this has been a field of interest for almost 20 years before I came to this book. But what really started building up again and again and again is – everybody kept saying you can't teach an old dog new tricks and there was all this cool research coming out of positive psychology coming out of network neuroscience and body cognition adult development a couple other fields that said no no that's that's really wrong in fact you know in our later years we come into all these cognitive superpowers they're going to accelerate learning they should make it easier for an old dog to learn new tricks and should make it possible for an older athlete to progress in seemingly impossible activities like park skiing and I thought when I started the experiment that I would have, I mean, maybe, you know what I mean? Maybe like I could, I said, I made a list of goals. I came up with 20 tricks that essentially define zero to intermediate. And I figured maybe it'll take me five years and it, like five years from now, I'm a park skier. Cool. Fine. We'll go that slow. I ended up accomplishing it in a single season. That was amazing. Let me tell you a couple things that aren't in the book or at the very end of the book, but that was amazing. My ski partner, as you know, his story is in the book, Ryan, he's 20 years younger than me and he's actually right. a former sponsored athlete, but he had gotten injured, had been away, had a family, raised three kids, right? Been away from the sport for a really long time. He came back and he was using all the same theories I was applying and he was making ridiculous leaps and bounds progress. So both of us were like, okay, this is fascinating. What the hell's going out of here? That's the story told in the book at the... As an addendum to the book, bit, but this happened last year, you know, what we essentially had was a very intriguing, but very small pilot study with two subjects, right? Right, right. And, but what we did this past year is we took all the ideas uh, at the heart of, of the, the learning protocol, took a group of 17 older adults ages 29 to 68 and snowboarders and skiers and used the same protocols and Taught them how to park ski in, like in far less time than it took me to learn. So uh, we we and we've continued to test it. We've taken it now out of park skiing and snowboarding, and we've just drawn our second group of sort of test subjects through that. And we're starting to see that like all these same ideas can be applied anywhere. So it's not you know it started in park skiing with this crazy experiment, but now you know even in the time since the book's been written, we've carried it out to you know older adults everywhere.
0: I love that man. Um, there's a there's a point you made in the book early in the book where you talk about the intrinsic motivators at midlife being passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. I'm curious how you see biology of flow interplays with these like you know macro ideas. Okay, so um, this is sort of an idea that
1: was at the heart of my book Art of Impossible in the motivation section, and uh, we know we meaning People who study human performance, not, not, uh, but there are five major intrinsic internal motivators. There are tons more, right? But there are five big ones, and they're curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And in a sense, they work, they work in sequence, right? Curiosity is designed to be built into passion passion desire to be coupled to something greater than yourself. Thus you get purpose. Once an organism, man, humans have, has purpose. Um, it wants autonomy, the freedom to pursue that purpose. And once you have autonomy, you want mastery, the skills to pursue it. Well, so if you're interested in amplifying motivation, um, all five of those are phenomenal. They are also, because when all five, any of those are present um, we get a lot of neurochemistry generated in our body that tends to drive focus into the present moment. Flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow, and focus, intensely focused attention on the task at hand is the most important thing. And, you know, there's a bunch of neurobiology underneath that, dopamine, mm-hmm. norepinephrine, things like that. So all, all of these curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, master, they're all flow triggers, so they do double duty. So they're big intrinsic motivators, but flow, Which besides being, you know, a state of optimal performance, we feel our best and perform our best, just about the most addictive, joyful, pleasurable, rewarding state on earth. Right. So what happens is you get all this motivation from having those intrinsic motivators set up properly and then flow just turbo boosts all of what you what you have, which is why. Uh, McKinsey went out, and did a ten-year study asking top executives how much more productive they find they they feel in flow, and it's self-reported. So, grain of salt. But the average was like five hundred percent more productive. Wow. Wow. So it's a it's a it's a significant significant boost and um very pleasurable, neurochemistry and really rewarding. Definitely drives flow. And um, I don't know. So one of the things people don't know about flow, flow is often talked about in the context of peak performance, um, it is not as frequently talked about in the context of learning and adult development. Adult development mm-hmm. is literally the study of how do we grow up? How do we become adults? What happens? We used to think like Piaget, who was the first person to realize that, hey, wait a minute, people go through these stages of development and started with kids. It took a really long time to figure out that adult development continues throughout life and it, and it sure. doesn't stop. What Chick sent me Me Miha Chick sent me high, the godfather of flow psychology, has, I wanna say, discovered, but let's say argued over and over again in five or six of his books very eloquently. Flow appears to be the engine of adult development. And you have to understand this for, you know, to drop into flow. I mentioned flow states have triggers. The golden rule of flow, it's called the challenge skills balance. The idea is we pay the most attention to the task at hand. When the challenge slightly exceeds our skill set, you want to stretch but not snap. So when you drive yourself into flow, because you're stretching on your skills, you come out the other side with a little more mastery. You're a more adaptable, complex creature, and you also gain, and we know this, you gain a lot of the things that we think of that go along with adult development, you gain empathy, you get insight into other perspectives, so you gain wisdom. All of those things are part of what you get in flow. It's part of optimal performance, right? And it so chick set me argue that this is the engine that, that drives us forward. And certainly, final thing I'll say, all the research on adult development says um, – well, on, on, on peak performance aging really says – um, we want to, you know, the, 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 the amount of flow we can have in the second half of our lives is really, really, really going to determine the quality of the second half of our lives. Right. That much is really clear too.
0: Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there friends, it's Darius Mishazda here and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear, uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to Shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Interesting. Um God, I, have so, I have so much, so many places to go from here, but I'm going to, I'm going to stay on task. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I swear to God, I I think I did more research for this interview than I did for, for any other interview just because I knew that we were going to have so much stuff to talk to, to cover. But, um, you know, in the book, you know, it was really interesting watching you go through the process of getting ready to get ready for this, you know, the season, season and a half of, of, of essentially, you know, accomplishing these crazy goals you talk about stack practices which I thought was really interesting this idea of you know combining different things to maximize your time and to accomplish this nearly impossible task. Can you talk us through what what is a stack practice yeah, for how, sure. yeah. how did you so, how did you do that? It's a great it's a great question. This is so this is a this is something we have
1: leveraged and used at the Flow Research Collective. So uh, we're not just a research organization, we're a training organization, right? We work in 130 countries and we work with companies like Facebook and Bain Capital and Accenture and Audi. And we work with all tons of individuals. And sure, we work with professional athletes and, and members of the U.S. Special Forces or whatever, but most of the people we work with are just like you and me, right? Like we'll, we'll do soccer moms from Iowa and insurance brokers from Indiana and coders from Delhi and traders from London. And, you know, one, the only commonality I think that everybody across the boards has that we work with is they're all really busy. So time management really matters. And this becomes so much more important in the half, second half of our lives. And let me just make a very bold, we can come back to the, the science underneath this if you want, let me just make a, a kind of a, a crazy statement, that, but it'll help explain this. So most people, when they think about aging, their idea is, some, is what I call the long, slow route theory, right? Our physical and mental skills decline over time and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide and nothing could be actually be farther from the truth. There's a pile of research that started showing up in the 90s and has continued to grow till now um, that says all the skills, and I'm talking physical skills, mental skills, memory, everything across the words we used to think declined over time, we now know are user or lose it skills. And if mm. you never stop training these skills, they never go away. But like just on the physical side, right? Even if you're just going to the level of functional fitness, that's strength, stamina, balance and agility. Agility is balance and speed and flexibility. Most of those things have to be trained independently in, 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 in one way or another. So unless you can, there are ways around it. But my point is that's a lot to do at, right? Sure. And so like peak performance in general, there's a li- well, there's a lot to do. You get huge benefits, right? Performance goes up, productivity goes up, motivation, all that stuff happens, but there's a lot to do. It takes and in peak performance aging, that is equally true. And so one of the things that allowed me to do it, right? To do this, cause I, look, I run a huge company or not a huge company, but I run a mid-market company. I write a lot of books. Um, I have a very busy, uh, you know, speaking schedule. My wife and I run an, a dog sanctuary. Um, so there's a lot going on. I'm like, you know, everybody else, not a lot of time. And, you know, how do I get after it? And so we always look for stack protocols and multi-tool solutions. A multi-tool solution is a single solution that solves multiple problems at once. And the, and the, the example I always give, though this is a kind of a minimal multi-tool solution, but it's an easy way to think about it, is uh, mindfulness training. So mindfulness training from a flow perspective, anything that trains up focus is going to amplify flow anything that lowers anxiety rids the body of cortisol and norepinephrine is going to amplify flow both mm. of those things have to get done if you want more flow in your life so mindfulness is a single tool that solves two problems at once mm. that's a multi-tool solution a stack protocol is so rec- act if you're going to go after a physical challenge at any time recovery matters Later in life, it matters even more because it takes, for a bunch of different reasons, it takes older adults a little longer to recover. So you have to get really good at recovery tools. So what's a great recovery tool? Uh, infrared sauna, any kind of sauna is a great recovery tool. But it's also one of my favorite things is that you can stack protocols. So I can go into a sauna for 20 minutes and I can do mindfulness while I'm in the mm-hmm. sauna. So I'm doing... You know, two things at once and the things that I'm doing solve multiple problems at once. And one of the reasons I like saunas is um, among their copious benefits, which are ridiculous, but uh, they also actually train up your cardiovascular system. It's -hmm. the only way you can get cardiovascular exercise without actually getting cardiovascular exercise that's actually not true. Wim Hof breathing will do it sure. too. So if you do Wim Hof breathing inside a sauna, be careful if you're doing breath holds, by the way, you can black out. But <laughs> you can. It's really... People learn this the hard way in saunas. So like, I'll do Wim Hof breathing and, and breath holds, but I make sure I'm leaning back so I don't go through the door. Um, <laughs> I like, raise something, saunas, something to,
2: people.
0: Was with you, something tells me that's happened to you. Like you you're it like, hasn't just, happened
1: to me, but I will... T- so my friend, Josh Wayskin, um was doing breath work and in the bathtub, and blacked oh, out and nearly drowned. Oh shit! So like, yeah. And so when I remember having this conversation with Josh, the reason I haven't like I blacked out on saunas, but I've been leaning back. It hasn't happened to me. But no, it was actually a friend of mine who um nearly killed himself doing doing breath holes uh, in a bathtub.
0: Oh man, that's crazy. So I got to ask you this question cuz you talk about this a lot in the book and and the, the book really you, it's almost in a certain sense like a journal of of day to day what you going out and you know all the things that you did day in and day out, one day at a time. And there was there was a term used and I didn't look it up and probably should have, but but I was reading it and and the, the truth be told I was I was reading this when I the book on vacation so I I didn't have a chance to to look stuff up. So um You say you use the term "ski the line," and I didn't know what it meant. And I would love for you to like, like, oh, see
1: the line, ski the line. That's what I was that that phrase.
0: Yeah, that you guys refer Um, to it a bunch in the books. Like, oh, we're skiing this line, and
1: and what does that mean? So, first of all, great question. In action sports, action sport athletes have often thought of themselves as creatives, as artists. As much as athletes, sure. and they draw lines. That's what you, when you ski a line down a mountain through the snow, you are literally drawing a line down the mountain. When mm. you surf across a wave, your uh, your fins are literally carving a line across the wave. So when like after a surfer is gone, after a skier is gone, the proof of the only proof of what they did is a line drawn in the snow that is only okay. temporary. So, but. You talk about uh, like great action sport athletes um, are often action sport athletes who could see lines so that other people couldn't. So Shane McConkey, mm-hmm. one of the earliest, uh, most famous skiers of all time. One of the things what set Shane apart, he was a talented, amazingly talented skier and could do stuff that a lot of people couldn't do. But there were a lot of people like that. He could look at a mountain and see a way to draw a line like I could link these three cliffs together, I can jump from there to here, wow. jump from here to here, ski through this little sneaker thing and they could draw a line down the mountain that nobody else could see. So, skiers talk about, and snowboarders talk about being able to see lines or you'll have climbers talk about it the same way. So, in action sports, a, a line is usually a path up or a path down or a path across a surface.
0: Got it. Okay. I was, I was trying to understand it, but, but that, that makes total sense. And and I love, I love the, 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 not even the analogy. I think, I I think there's so much truth in that, that uh, when you watch these action sport athletes, it is art, you know, it's, it's, it's so artistic to watch. So the creativity that goes into it and, and, and it makes a lot more sense now. All right. So big question coming up. All right. In the book, there's a, a, I don't want to call it alter ego persona that comes out by the name of Ghost Dog. Oh, the dog. voice in my head? Oh, Ghost the, Dog. Ghost Dog, yeah. Ghost Dog. dog. Yeah, w- ghost dog. Wanna, yeah, tell us about Ghost Dog. So um,
1: part of this, uh, it just evolved out of um, wanting to have sort of different terminology uh, for skiing, for like experiences that I would like normally talk about academically or as a researcher, you know, and I, so ghost dog was literally ghost dog mode became like the alter ego version of myself in deep flow states and a lot of it. So skiers like different things. The easiest way for me to drop into flow, and this is kind of crazy is often to ski through the trees. and I like eight to 10, 10 inches of powder. Some people like really deep snow. I like eight eight to 10 inches because it allows me to bounce around. So I'm literally jumping around in the trees. I'm usually always, um, I, I tend to skiers. Some skiers really like attention. Other people like to just like, I'm an introvert. I'm always dressed in black. You can never see my face. And I'm, you know, as a general rule, like skiing alone through the trees, bouncing around, um, in a place that if this shit goes wrong they're never even gonna find my body and but like it's it's you know it's instant flow state for me and but like when you're in that so a couple things that are worth pointing out in deep flow in action sports when you are performing at your best it's never sort of a solo thing it's a it's a i call, I call it in the book a gravity dance because you're literally mm you're using gravity to extend what's possible for the human body, right? A human body at speed can do a lot of stuff that a human body standing still can't do, especially when you're moving down like a slippery snow coated mountain. And it's a, it feels, especially in flow, as the boundary of self starts to get fuzzy. And we could talk about the neurobiology of why that happens, but the boundary of self gets fuzzy at the same time you're doing this, like you're cooperating with primal forces gravity mm. mountains snow right and it feels like this shared dance right this gravity dance that i talk about it but it also feels like the part the version that emerges like the best version of me so to speak um it's a different person there's you know what i mean there's yeah uh, it's a different person than i am most of the time and you know better worse whatever definitely different and i've given it a name i call
0: it ghost dog mode yeah the ghost dog got after it. In the book. Got ghost it was dog. Awesome. Yeah. I loved it, man. That's cool. Um, you know, speaking of, you know, getting into the flow state, like one, one of the things that at least my interpretation of this was, you really had a lot of like rituals, rules, regimens, you know, testing, you, you know, essentially testing your physical and mental schedules. Right. And, and I guess my question for you is, you know, why do you think that was such an important part for you to move to higher and higher levels mm. in park skiing? And and how do you think, like, obviously most people are not going to go out and start park skiing, but how might they leverage these types of systems, rituals, cadences in their lives if they're trying to level up in some specific area similar to what you did? Again, not necessarily being as extreme as park skiing. So um, I'll give you a, a sort of a... Gener- I, you may
1: have to ask a more specific question, but here's... Um, Here's what I could tell you. And um, you know, a lot of the, the um I always I think of Nar Country is sort of a companion book to Art of Impossible. Art of Impossible gives you sort of the big science of why a lot of this stuff works, but coming out of Art of Impossible, what people kept saying is like, okay, I've got all the science. How do you apply this? And so one of the reasons why Nar Country is literally, as you pointed out, written as is essentially a diary, is I wanted to see people I wanted people to understand what the, what applied peak performance looks like. And mm. the reason is peak performance and peak performance aging, they're checklists. There are a list of things you want to do every day or every week. Right. And, um, they get woven into other, th- into other things you're doing, but it's nothing literally more complicated than that. And, um, there are specific ways you want to do it and whatever, but like, I wanted people to see what that looked like on a day on a daily basis, just applying it over and over. And, um, cause it works, that's how you tackle sort of any hard challenge. And it's, it was based on one of the hardest ideas that I find to communicate with anybody is in peak performance is that hard work works. Like it legitimately does hard work works and, Mm. You know, I, so when I, when I set out to do all these crazy things, I, when I went to the mountain, my goal was to ski 16 laps a day. If I learned a new trick, great, that was fantastic, but that was not the goal. I set a specific, I knew 12 laps is like, I'm maintaining my fitness, right? Right, 16 laps, I'm pushing myself and usually 16 laps, I'm going to drop into flow. And if I could get it up, my goal, good days on the hill was above 20, 25 laps. Then you're guaranteed to get into flow because you can't ski that much without the pain relief that comes from the state. Once I was in flow and performing my best, I knew I was going to learn tricks and advance my cause. But my cause was show up and ski 16 laps. And I wanted people to see, like you can get to the impossible 16 laps at a time. Like that's all I did, right? Yeah. I was—I I pushed through a lot of stuff to, to do that. But like in a sense... I wanted people to get a sense of, oh, wow, like hardware works. The other thing that's really difficult to teach to people um, about peak performance is peak performance works like compound interest. right? It's a little bit push a little bit harder today, push a little bit harder tomorrow, but it's how it stacks up over months that give you the real result. And I wanted uh, so I wanted people to see that, too. So one of the reasons they got like. The ritual aspect of it is because peak performance is a checklist and this this stuff is available to everybody and two i wanted people to see what it looked like when you tried to apply that checklist to like a, a ridiculous task right like yeah. um in a sense like if this shit works for me at park skiing imagine like what it's going to do if you know you want to just learn how to play the piano
0: totally yeah i love that um you know one word you made me think of um is grit you talk about grit in the book um you say that grit is a limited resource can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I, when I heard you talk about and you do it in the book a lot, you're yeah, I did my sixteen laps and boom, and then on lap twenty, your guys are doing gnarly shit in the park, and it's like, and you're in flow state. You could kind of watch that progression. At least that's how it, it read, right? Um, but what I, I always think, think back to, and I was a D one athlete. You know, grit is what you know when you're performing at these higher levels. Like grit gets you kind of far, but if it's a limited resource. A tell us why why that is, and then secondly like how how do we overcome that to 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 be able to to be in flow more often so three
1: things here: the first thing when I say grit is a limited resource on a daily basis, grit is essentially tied to willpower, and mm-hmm. Roy Biweister Prove very conclusively about willpower runs out on a daily basis. Now, he had an argument for why people have um, disagreed with his argument, but nobody disagrees with the fact that willpower declines over the course of a day and that underpins grit. And you need some kind of powerful state change, usually sleeping, right, and eating um, uh, to reset it. Over long periods of time, um, if all, you're only reaching for grit, if it's, that's the only re- tool you're reaching for, that is a recipe for burnout, right? Yeah. Guaranteed. And burnout is performance, complete derailment. It, um, so you really want to avoid it at all costs. One of the things I say in, in, in our country, and one of the things that I think allowed me to do this is we use grit as a last resort. So what I mean by that is it's the last tool I reach for, not the first tool. Most people just think I'm going to tough this out um, cause they can, and they don't, you know, and they know how to do that. And it's not that I, you know, there's a, first of all, in any sort of, uh, Gnar style adventure, whether you're teaching yourself how to park ski or, or whatever, like there's going to be stuff that happens. That's going to require grit anyways, right? So you're going to, if grit is a limited resource, stuff is going to come up anyways, cause it's a hard physical challenge. that's going to require grit. So I, I, we would reach for it for the last at the last resort. In other words, we would often, when like a situation was like, "Oh wow, I don't, you know, I don't have the motivation for this." Do I get gritty? No, I, there are five other massive intrinsic motivators that I'm that I'll reach for. So instead of trying to get gritty to like push myself uh, in one, uh, certain ways, we often will use. Uh, you can use novelty as, mm. a, as a motivator uh, is, is, for example, we would switch into exploratory mode. If we were like, you know, if driving, if going, trying to get into flow and skiing more and skiing harder, a lot of people would reach for risk, right? Oh, I know mm-hmm. if I go into this scary line that maybe that'll, that, that'll help. And um, that's a gritty choice, right? That's the like, sure. oh, I'm going to push through my fear. And I, and I was like, no, 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 I'm going to actually dial the challenge way back and go into exploratory mode. Let's go look at parts of the mountain we've never seen before yeah. and use novelty and exploration and creativity and that sort of stuff as motivation. That stuff all produces dopamine, all drives flow. And once I'm in flow, then you're performing your best. maybe then it's time to go back and ski that gnarlier line, for example.
0: Got it, okay, cool, that, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. Um, you know, it's interesting in reading the book, there's these moments that you guys get in, go into like a group flow and, and you're skiing with other folks and you're playing games with them and you guys are doing it. Looked, it seemed it was really entertaining to read. But what I got took from that is that proximity seems to be a big part of, of being able to challenge oneself to level up and you use the term aping, copying, mimicking. I'd love, I'd love to, for you to talk a little bit about like, how that is a tool for folks that are trying to maybe get out of their comfort zone and, and try, try to do things that they haven't done. So um, Group flows separate discussion, this is sort of a discussion
1: about uh, embodied cognition which is body cognition basically says um, our mind, our brain, our cognition, how we think um, isn't, doesn't just take place in the brain. Brains uh, are also embedded in bodies. Bodies are embedded in the environment. And there's this conversation between all these levels. That is how we create. uh, That's how we think Um, applied to body cognition basically says, You can accelerate learning by coupling with movement. For example, Mm. if you're trying to learn a foreign language, right? If you couple words with gestures, you'll learn Hmm. a lot faster. To just give you one example, um, give you a total inverse example. um, Our pattern recognition skills go through the roof when we move. So uh, radiologists on walking desks, are significantly more accurate than radiologists sitting on their butt for these reasons. Um, I could go on and on and on here, but one of the things about embodied cognition that really matters is when I was trying to learn how to park ski um, for a lot of different reasons, we did it by playing follow the leader games. So either I would lead or my ski partner would lead. And when you watch somebody perform an action we have mirror neurons in our prefrontal mm. cortex. And right. the mirror neurons literally simulate the exact same motor program. So you watch somebody throw a 360 on skis, your mirror neurons run the exact same program as if you yourself were throwing the 360. You then get a interoceptive, like stickle for your body. You'll get a little rush of pleasure, dopamine, a little bit of dopamine if you have the move. And you'll get a little bit of fear, norepinephrine, if you don't have the move. Because mm. you're very good at interior reception. You pay attention to the bottles. But he's, he goes, the way we would do this is this we'd play follow the leader. And let's say I'm following Ryan around. And as I said, he's a former sponsored athlete. He's obviously a lot better than me. Let's say he did a move that, you know, uh, and I got a no go signal. I it, it didn't mean that I didn't try anything, it meant that I dialed it way back. So he did a 360 you know launching off the jump and sending a 360 you know 30 feet maybe i did a sliding spin 360 across the knuckle and flew like five feet and i wasn't really in the air i was just doing a more acrobatic trick so i would dial it down or up based on interception and did i get the signal that was one of the things we did when we taught people how to park ski and you get sort of groups of people doing it and it, it feeds on itself a lot and um, it makes, uh, it, make, it amplifies learning. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's also a form of dynamic deliberate play and dynamic deliberate play, play is sort of applied in body cognition. And dynamic play is you're using all the use or lose it. Dynamic play is the greatest multi-tool solution for peak performance aging because you've got to strength, strength, stamina, agility, all these things. But if you're using dynamic play, um, and I'll talk about del- dynamic, deliberate play. These, those words mean, deliberate means something there and I'll come back to it in a second, but um, dynamic motions train all the user to lose at school. So it's a fantastic multi-tool. So action sports in that way are really good multi-tools for peak performance aging, because you're training a bunch of skills that you need to do it at once. If you're interested in lifelong learning, which is another secret to peak performance aging, if you want to stave off cognitive decline, for example, Dementia, Alzheimer's, preserve as much neural function as you possibly can. You need expertise and wisdom. That the those are the secrets. Um, period. Mm. Then those are different, slightly different skills, but basically, underneath both of them, you have these big, wide neural nets. And so, when you get cognitive decline, a dementia, and Alzheimer's, it tends to be singular portions of the brain. And by developing expertise and wisdom, you've got a lot of redundancy. Things are all over the brain. So dynamic play or dynamic deliberate play gives you sort of a bunch of this. Deliberate practice is Anders Ericsson's idea and expertise, right? Basically do the same thing over and over and over again, slightly advanced. And it's really good for learning, but it's not quite as good as what they call as deliberate play, which is repetition without repetition. I'm Mm. doing the same thing, but I'm improvising a little bit. It's what we were doing around the ski skill. We're playing follow the leader games. We're getting these mirror neuron signals, but then it's like this dynamic deliberate play. Play has tons of benefits, lowers, you know, as I said, it, you know, increases learning. It lowers our risk of dementia, lowers our risk of heart disease. It produces brain derived neurotrophic factor, which helps increase learning and and is neuroprotective against cognitive decline, etc. I can go on and on and on. But it was that these modalities that sort of allowed me to go a lot faster and a lot farther than anybody thought possible, including
0: myself. Yeah, <laughs> it, no, it, was, it was really impressive just to read through it. And anyone that, that's going to listen to this and get the book, it's, it's such a cool journey to watch it happen, like step it was by step. Funny, in it was a funny book because I, you know, I'm, I wrote,
1: I had that journal, I was just keeping the journal, just have a record of the season. I had mm-hmm. no idea the shit was going to work until like <laughs> two-thirds of the way through the season. And I was like, oh, wow, this is actually working. Wow, maybe this should be a book, right? It really – it was just an uh, experiment. Like the another country, the first version of it is sort of like my diary of the experiment more than anything
0: yeah. else. Uh, that's so cool. So we, so the the whole thing is around, you know, aging, you know, flow and, and experimentation and aging well, right? The, the way I think about this is, is aging and not letting age get in the way of, of really having a quality second half of life. And so in the book, you know, there's a couple of things that you talk about. First of all, you mentioned that positive mindset towards aging prevents cognitive decline and adds up to seven and a half years of extra life. I'd, I'd love to talk about that as well as some of the things that you think that you've studied that determine, you know, that help people determine a better quality of life, like a, as they age. Like, well, like, what did you find so, in that? In that, yeah, I mean, it all puzzles me. This
1: is, I mean, the mindset research, um, the sort of the godmother uh, of it is Ellen Langer at Harvard, um, Harvard psychologist Ellen Langer. Is sort of, she pioneered most of the work around mindset and aging, but like. The, the, what you just quoted, uh, the seven and a half extra years, um, that showed up in a bunch of studies, but I think the most famous one is the Ohio Longitudinal Study on Retirement and Aging. It ran from 1975 to 1995, and it specifically looked at the impact on a positive mindset towards aging. That's literally, I believe, the second half of my life is, is filled with exciting and thrilling possibilities, right? Um, the end result of a positive mindset towards aging is an extra seven and a half years of life which is 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 astounding um and has huge and this is Ellen Langer's work and I mean huge incredible impact on not just our mental health, our physical health, our physiology. So it's not that you just get an extra seven and a half years of life, you get an extra seven and a half years of high quality healthy life. Um, so that um one you know one thing is 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 at the heart of all this. you gotta you know really, really work on your mindset. Um, towards aging. Uh, The other things, um, it's really, I mean, you can summarize some of this stuff really actually quickly. Um, Adults who engage in challenging social and creative activities um, are going to thrive so much more than anybody else. So like if if you're if taking one thing away from this like later in life challenging social creative activities that's that's sort of what you're aiming for if you really want to take it further it's authentic challenging social creative activities and authentic means there's a tight match between your values and your strengths and who you are and your actual actions um and you could you know you could build on that if you you know you want to take the next step further It's you know, older adults who do challenging creative social activities um, in novel outdoor environments, are, you know, are going to are going to take it further. And this is one of the other things about action sports that's worth pointing out. I said earlier that action sports managed to train up all of the uh, the physical user to lose it skills that we think decline over time. Uh, The other thing that's really cool about action sports and in aging is so if you want to stave off cognitive decline, retain brain function, right? you want neurogenesis. You need the birth of new neurons. And the adult brain births about 700 new neurons a day, even until very, very late in life. But uh, you can crank that up or or, or turn it down depending on what you do. And one of the easiest ways to crank it up, most neurogenesis takes place in the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain um, that's sort of uh, in the limbic system, in the temporal lobe. And it's where... uh, map making takes places so we talk about mm. it in terms of memory but it's really spatial memory the brain wants to know where shit happened when like important stuff goes down like and um we evolved as hunter-gatherers so like remembering where was the tiger that almost jumped me or where sure. was that right fruit tree or where was dinner where's the cave that's survival so we're really good at it and so most of this neurogenesis is in the hippocampus because the hippocampus has place cells and grid cells and all the mapping cells, right? And um, what when you have novel and emotionally exciting experiences in outdoor environments, this is literally what the hippocampus was designed to do. So action sports, skiing, for example, gives you novel outdoor, you know, novel experiences in, uh, in outdoor environments, um, it's exactly what you need to sort of birth new neurons. So um, it ter- this is also why, for example, the longest lived community in America is Summit County, Colorado, right? And mm. number two is Pitkin County. And this is where Aspen and Vail and Beaver Creek and, you know, meccas of outdoor activity and hiking and skiing and snowboarding and mountain biking and whatnot um so none of that's particularly surprising but if you summit county colorado outlives the rest of america by an additional 10 years wow that's kind of significant
0: yeah it's like another blue zone that's insane um i I did not know that um gosh so look I, i we're kind of rounding near the end of the show here um here at the greatness machine um you know we are as I mentioned earlier, we're all about people who are living their passions to create greatness in the world. And, and I always like to end on a question with, um, all of our guests. And so my question for you is this, what do you think is the biggest barrier for people reaching greatness in their lives? And, and maybe speak to, to your own experience And and how have you overcome these types of barriers in your own life to achieve the greatness that you've achieved?
1: I, you know, the thing that I, the thing that I always point out, and this is sort of, this is what I learned at the end of our impossible, uh, which is sort of, you know, a book about the science of all this stuff. It's definitely the same thing true in our country over and over again, you know, human beings are just capable of so much more than they know. And, but the only way you can figure out what you're capable of is by, you know, is that challenge skill squeeze by, you've got to push on your skills to the utmost again and again and again, you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Otherwise, otherwise you cannot, you cannot do that. And, um, that to me is, I mean, more than anything else is. I got really comfortable being uncomfortable. And I was all I was always it wasn't just sort of that I was always willing to push myself, it's that I was always in everything I did seeking for like actively looking what scares me a lot, what direction. Mm. Every one of my books, for example, you mentioned uh Stealing Fire. So well uh, at the start of the show. Uh and Stealing Fire, uh I said, you know, every one of my books has a Has a writing challenge, like I want to write in this cool style, I want to do that stuff. And then it's got the communication challenge. This is the information I want to teach you. But usually there's like a third secret challenge. In, In Stealing Fire, it was idea density. So to write that book, I had to be able to write sentences that were thicker and denser than almost any other, because there's so many facts in that book. I had to actually tell you twice as much as I would normally have to tell you. So I had Mm. to figure out how do you put way more facts into a sentence without losing your reader. And so I, what I basically, I spent a lot of time studying, for example, Steven Pinker, who's a science writer who has incredible density in his sentences, but they're fun. And he doesn't Mm. tend to lose his reader. So like I had to, I had to, literally like make, you know, he was one of the people I studied, but I always like everything I do, I'm, I'm, I'm always asking myself, what scares me here? Where's more of a challenge? How can I stretch myself? How can I keep going? And it's just, you know, the willingness to sort of do that all the time. Um, And I think the other thing is, is there's, there's a flip side to that, that I, that I would just, I don't, if I'm going to do something, my aim is to be best in the world. Now, am I gonna fail the vast majority of the time? The vast majority sure. of the time I'm going to fail. But um, I don't get in the ring unless I'm trying for great greatness. Like I don't like there if 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 I just am thinking, yeah, oh, I'm gonna do this and I'll be mediocre at it, I will let somebody else. That's somebody else's thing. Um you know, the things that I'm gonna jump into, I'm trying to be best in the world at.
0: I love it, man. Ugh. Audience, the book is in our country. Growing old, staying rad. I grew up in SoCal in the '80s, so I can say rad and own that word. Um, but man, Stephen, what what a treat to have you on the show! I learned so much. I could have I could have asked you thirty more questions, but I got I got I got my top ones out. Um, so, when the book come out? Where can people get it? Um, what's the best way to connect on all the other projects you're, you're working on? So, uh, the book comes out February
1: 28th. You can go to narcountry.com. So, nar, g n a r country.com. And the cool thing is, uh, we've got, um, we're running a really fun pre sale campaign with tons of amazing bonuses. I, it's like, I've always wanted to build, because like, if you buy the book early, you help me a lot, right? It helps on the bestseller campaigns, all the stuff that I'm trying to do with the book, really help me. And um, we actually, built kick just kick ass bonus content uh for folks um that really make all the stuff we've been talking about today actual and practical practical. So um if you pre-order the book um at, at the website there's a whole bunch of bonus content and it, it you know in a sense everything we've been talking about uh you know really made practical and actionable is is there. So that's awesome. a gift for you listeners.
0: You're Very the cool. first person
1: I've told about the website. Oh. <laughs> <It's> brand new. <laughs>
0: I'm pumped, man. So look, we'll put that in the show notes. And um, with that said, I know I want to get you out of here on time. Stephen, you're you're a badass. The book's a, bad, a badass book, and I'm so excited for all the all the learnings people are going to get from your from this amazing book in our country. Thank you so much for being. Thanks, sir. My all pleasure. Right, listen- Thanks for your interest in my work. Yeah, I, I I really am a fan of your work, and and this was it was really cool to get to do this. Um, so uh, listeners, go buy the book, share the book. Get the get the 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 promotional freebies that he's offering. We're gonna put it in the show notes, as I mentioned. If you love this, share this with friends. And as Steven mentioned, when the books well, you know, when pre pre order the books, this is how we help our, our um our authors really kick ass at their launch. So do do Steven that favor. I'll be doing that. And um with that said, we love you. Peace out from here at the Greatness Machine.